Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. On June the 3rd, we threw a garden party with four guest speakers in the auditorium of Opera Holland Park in West London. Gorgeous, cloudless skies above. And the second of these guests was Bob Stanley. You'll know Bob, of course, for over 30 years, a member of St. Etienne, writer, a DJ, a regular fixture on these podcasts. He's written two wonderful pop histories. Yeah, 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 the story of modern pop. And let's do it, the birth of pop. And also compiled a book about the fall with his wife, Tessa Norton. But his latest book is about a group who had to navigate momentous peaks and troughs for over the last 40 years, during which he, and very rightly, thinks they had nowhere near the critical respect they deserve. And this fascinating conversation includes their early life, labelled teenage delinquents in Manchester, their start in Australia, success and how they rather unsuccessfully handled it, and how they cooked up the sound of night fever almost by accident. The book's called Bee Gees, The Children of the World, and this applause indicates that Bob is on his way to the stage. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So, Bob, welcome. That must have been one of the re- main reasons that you wrote the book. I mean, you, you loved the Bee Gees when you were young and, uh, and felt that they've, you know, they're still, people have to apologise, don't they, for talking about a Bee Gees song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, my introduction to them <clears throat> was um, my uncle gave me a C90 when I was about 10, I think, of uh, the Beach Boys' greatest hits on one side, like the sort of 1970 compilation, I think it is, uh, and the Best of the Bee Gees on the other, which was the 1969 compilation, when they split up temporarily. And he gave it to me like in the year that Jive Talking came out. So they, they were kind of back, and I, I, I couldn't marry the two at all at the time. It didn't make much sense to me, but I absolutely loved this tape, and um, uh, I loved their harmonies, I loved their use of minor chords and orchestration. Um, and um, yeah, so from, from that point on, I was a fan, and the Saturday Night Fever stuff, I, you know, like everybody else at school, it seemed, I had to like, laugh at them when secretly <laughs> I thought they were great, and I thought they were amazing songwriters. Um, oh, there it goes again. Um, so yeah, so it's, it, was, it, it goes back a long way, and um, 
they've, you know, as, as long as I can remember, they've never been, never been taken that seriously. I think I might take this out, actually. And one of the many revelations of the book is that, is that uh, very early on, of course, they were considered, were they delinquents? Well, well this is school, it. I wanted to, you know. to go into this because they, they, obviously, they were born and brought up, what, Isle of Man, Manchester, that, that kind of area, and then went to Australia. Pretty much, I got the impression the local chief of police said, get your children out of this area, otherwise they'll spend their lives in jail. Well, I think I mean, it's, um, you know, comparing to the Rolling Stones, for instance, I think that the image they've always tried to put across is that there's nothing to see here. We're very normal. We write very normal songs, um, catchy songs for people to hum. Uh, well, that's, that's Barry Gibbs' kind of approach. I mean, he's always considered himself the boss of the group, and now he's the only BG left, so he most definitely is. Um, yes. But when they were kids, um, uh, Robin used to uh, like setting fire to things. Initially, like just things under his bed. And he thought well, that worked well. I've gone to uh, billboards and then onto buildings. So um, uh, Rob, uh, Barry and Morris were both uh, brought home by the police for stealing stuff. Uh, and I think when it was like a whole, like a, I think it was like a furniture shop went up in South Manchester, and the police came round and said. I really think you should consider moving to Australia because otherwise they're going to all going end up in Borstal. So, uh, uh, and at that point, I mean, they, they were very poor. They used to, they used to move, the, the number of houses they lived in, in the Isle of Man and Manchester and later Australia, um, the address changed every six months because they just like do a bunk before they had to pay the rent. They had, they had no money. Um, so hard to believe, is it, to tally with your, your yeah. impression of what these guys were like? Yeah, absolutely. I think they, they definitely gave the impression, that obviously when they got to the late 70s, and they were like wearing these um, outrageous suits and um, looking very sort of uh, hair-in-the-wind kind of photos. Um, they were giving the impression of looking very wealthy. And by then they were, but I mean, it's like they, they'd, never, they'd never had money growing up at, at any point. And they weren't really educated, were they? No, no, because they kept moving. So they, they, they never really got a proper education. Um, the, the twins came out of school when they were 14, and Andy Gibb, who's kind of um, the Brian Jones character in the Bee Gees story, um, he was hugely successful in America as a, as a teen idol in the late 70s, and is basically forgotten, though. He died in the mid-80s. Uh, but he left school when he was 13. Um, when they were living in... He was living with his parents in Ibiza at that point, and the Bee Gees were... Uh, um, in America by then. Um, so, yeah, yeah, they, they, they grew never up had... in showbiz all their lives, didn't they? Which yeah. presumably had no real sense of worldliness or, no, or, or no. no real understanding of the way often relationships work because they've been in this very closed world. Yeah, totally. I mean, so, yeah. um, they, 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 they never really made friends at school because they were like changing schools so often. So they bonded much more closely and obviously also tore each other to bits because they were brothers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were like, you know, like Morris says, he remembers like playing these. Uh, uh, sharing a, a dressing room with strippers in Australia when he was like 13. Uh, so it wasn't a very normal upbringing, no. It's, uh, um, yeah, but yeah, they never, they, they, one of the reasons they were so tight uh, and were so wary of outsiders is because they never had, never really had friends when they were kids because they were just moving all the time. But they took the enormous gamble. I mean, they, 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 they were known in Australia that they had, had hit. It's 60 years ago, pretty much this week since mm. the first record came out. But then, what, 1967, they decide they're going to come to the UK. Very risky thing to do. And they just wrote to Brian Epstein, is that right? Yeah, their dad wrote to Brian Epstein. I mean, the thing is, they've been making records since 1963, and none of them had sold. Um, you know, again, the official, the official thing, when, when they're telling the story themselves, is that, you know, they'd had, like, hits in Australia. And they hadn't, they hadn't really. They, they'd, Barry had written some hits for other people, but not, 
They really weren't. They were just thought of as a child act. They weren't taken seriously, even then. Um, and there was also um, Australia was involved in Vietnam, and Barry was about to turn 18, and I think his dad was like, because the boys had been like pestering him to come back to England. He's like, okay, maybe we should. Maybe we should go back to England. Uh, wrote to Brian Epstein, as you do, and said, oh, here, here, here are my sons. I've written some songs, sent some acetates to NEMS. Um, and Robert Stigwood, who was working at NEMS then, picked them up and thought they were great. So when they, when they got to England, he called them up almost as soon as they arrived. Uh, so having gone from, like, four years of having no hits in Australia, putting out a dozen singles, um, they were, you know, meeting the Beatles, meeting Brian Epstein, in the studio, recording New York Mining Disaster, all in a matter of, like, six weeks. I, I, I just want to talk about New York Mining Disaster and Massachusetts, which you, you kind of make quite a bit of this in the book. These were entirely invented events, weren't they? Or, you know, yeah. You make the, there was no New was York no mining, mining disaster, disaster in 1941. No. But they made a record which kind of sounded folky, didn't it, really? Yeah, they, 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 they wrote it when they were um, in the Polydor studios. It was basically like a demo studio, the, fir the first time they'd done anything in Britain. Um, and there was a power cut, and they were like sat at the bottom of this staircase where the studio was next to this rattly old lift shaft, and they were like, oh, it's like being at the bottom of a mine and being trapped. And, you know, so wrote the song in 10 minutes from that, you know, because that's, that's what they did. They were incredibly fast songwriters. Um, and they did like a very, a very basic demo. Then Bill Shepard, who did all the 60s orchestration, did a, a proper arrangement for it. Um, but they decided they liked the original sort of sparser version better, and that's the one that came out. But it's an incredible, incredibly odd choice of first it's single. It's really odd. Very, I mean, very the, the, odd. I think you and I have talked about this in the past, about the Bee Gees. They are weird, aren't they? The yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're deeply they strange people, yeah. I mean, so Massachusetts, you make a point about this, nobody ever feels nostalgic for a state, do they? You know, Massachusetts... No. Yeah, not, Massachusetts. It's not my hometown, is it? Is no, it? no, no, it's, um, no, it's... Uh, no, I said it's like it's like they, they never never felt nostalgia for Greater Manchester. You know, yes. it just yeah. it makes as much sense they as just that. Like the word, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and quite rightly, and it, and it worked. Yeah. Um, I think New York Mine Disaster, nineteen forty-one. If you saw that title written down in like early nineteen sixty-seven, you go, "Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. I want to hear that." So they were they were very savvy like that, and they used language. I mean, a lot of their lyrics are, are, are basically gibberish. But they, 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 they like the sound of the words. Sense, do they, the no, sense? no. But it's... they just had an amazing ear for what, what sounded good. Yeah. You know, the yeah. idea they moved into psychedelia straight away because that's what people wanted to hear. And, and also into disco, which we should talk about at some stage, actually. But I mean, because I think that part of it's so fascinating. They, yeah. they discovered, I think, when they were making jive talking, they hit upon this idea of the falsetto uh, vocal sound. And then when making Night Fever, this extraordinary thing happened in, involving the, the drum loop. Tell us that story, because that's the whole invention of a whole new yeah. kind of pop music, really. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they got, they got um, convinced to like, listen to more R&B on the radio, American radio, by Arif Mardin, who produced um, Jive Talking. And, uh, uh, and then after that, he, he, they, there was a, a change in distribution, which sounds like nothing. Like, Polydor got a different, different distributor, but it meant they couldn't work with Arif Mardin anymore, and they were like panicking, and Arif Mardin said, you can do it yourselves, just try and produce yourselves. So, so they did, and it, and it worked. And they were, they were in a, a chateau in the south of France, a bit like the Stones again. Um, uh, the Honky Chateau, Elton John's Honky Chateau. And they were, it was, everything was falling to bits. The studio was a, a mess. Um, and then the drummer, his, his, his mum got ill, and he had to fly home. And they were like, well, what on earth are we going to do now? We're in a studio where, like, nothing really works. Um, 
and we've got no drummer. So they had to make loops out of the, the drum tracks he'd already done. Um, one for Night Fever, and they looped it, and that's the, um, that's the drums on Staying Alive. Uh, they, they just used it as like a, um, a sample, really, I suppose, uh, thinking they'd replace it when the drummer got back. And then just um, realised it got, you, No, they sounded perfect, so why, why alter it? And um, from that point on, you know, up until like the uh, mid-'80s, their production got... The drummers were then unemployed. It's right, like, yeah, yeah. It's a mass <laughs> redundancy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the, the, different, the different personalities uh, in the group. So, so Barry, for a start, he's, he's the older brother, he's the kind of, he's the leader. He's obsessed with his, with the, uh, I'm fascinated by this because I think pop music is all about facial hair. And uh, he's obsessed with his beard, isn't he? He, he is, yeah. In, in the mid to 80s. To a strange he, uh, extent. Yeah, he did, he did a film, he did a, a, a solo album and, and a film to go with it, um, which is quite ahead of the time, uh, called Now Voyager in the mid 80s. And it's, um, it's, it's quite amusing. It's, 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 it's all right. It's not, it's not terrible, but, it's, uh, but he shaved off his beard. He just thought, no, I've had the beard long enough now. It's the mid-80s. People don't have beards in the mid-80s. And, um, and he hated the, the way he looked. He, he, he does look quite strange because you've got used to the way, the way he looks. He's a bearded yeah. concept, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. Why yeah. without a beard? But, of course, in the 60s, he didn't have a beard. It's like, you know, when he was like a sort of pin-up in the 60s, no, there's right. no beard. But, you know, he just, I think it just made him feel more confident and... Uh, yeah, so he grew his beard back straight away. There's one brief period in the mid-80s, he's got no beard. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But then um, there's Robin. I think you, you describe in the book, you say he's, a, he's got a kind of Chatterton um, side to him. Explain that. Um, 
when he was um, he was always getting ill. I think it's like the, the their their kind of drugs of choice were like Morris was an, an alcoholic basically. Um, Barry smoked a lot, and and Robin took uppers and downers, and I think the uppers and downers <laughs> were um, we ticked every box there. We went yeah. right through the menu. Yeah, <laughs> pity potty and boozy they used to call each other. That's right. Um, so yeah, Robin Robin was like the one who sort of suffered the most early on with this and would like collapse a lot and you know they couldn't like rouse him for, to do a show sometimes so um, yeah he was very and he was very very thin so that's why I was thinking he's like the Chatterton kind of character in the group and uh, to sort of emphasise this he started wearing kind of you know like frock coats or whatever uh, when he did his solo stuff in 1969 1970 then the songs are all about you know Victorian era First World War yes. everything's set in the yeah. past it's um really really odd um and, and and really quite beautiful stuff he likes him playing like a harmonium with a, with a drum machine he got a drum machine he said he bought in soho um it sounds like one from like an old home organ it's a bit like that and made two albums like that and had a massive hit with saved by the bell which i think is the first hit to have a, a drum machine on it i can't think of any earlier one um it's and it you know so you've got massive orchestration with a drum machine it's the oddest sound um, with these very odd lyrics about the First World War. So, Morris, you, you've said, you know, was an alcoholic, and he had the misfortune to move in next door to who? Uh, Ringo. <laughs> we, we, really, not the influence he was eating that no. would, have, would have helped. This is kind of late 60s, isn't it? Because the yeah. other thing that amazed me that came through in the book is how young they all got married. Yeah, yeah, they're all, I think they're all teenagers when they got married. Um, again, it's funny, like, think of the Stones, where like, Mick and Brian both married people who looked exactly like them. Like, Morris married Lulu, so it's um, quite a big difference there. Uh, Lulu, Paul Morris, feel sorry for him. Like, Lulu, when um, she announced to her mum that she was getting married to the good-looking one from the Bee Gees, her mum assumed she meant Barry. <laughs> I was very disappointed when it was Morris. That, that whole period is extraordinary in your book because there's a bit where they're... I mean, they're only 18, I think, the twins, and they're, they're, there's a bit where they're in a club in London and they meet John Lennon. And one of them buys him a drink. When he opens his wallet, he sees his Beatles fan club card inside yeah. it. You know. And I think... I can't remember which one. It might have been Morris. Bought six Rolls Royces because he, he just didn't know what to do with the money. I mean, how did they cope with all that? It was extraordinary because it was happened so fast, didn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, they, they didn't really because, uh, you know, the whole thing imploded within two years there's like just a jealousy between Barry and Robin both thinking they were like the lead singer uh, and at that point Robin had probably done lead vocals on more of the hits like Massachusetts than uh, oh well uh, than, um, than Barry had um, but Robert Stig would always thought Barry was the, the leader of the group and uh, uh, yeah. should, be, should be the lead singer and the front man uh, which he obviously became in the 70s uh, so yeah they didn't cope with it very well at all and um, um, but again you know Rob, Robin was Robin was in um the Hither Green train crash, which was at the time was one of the worst train disasters in Britain, and he was he was in he's in on the train and climbed out, and he was like he was injured but not too badly. But it's like you know like, and then two days later they were like playing at a festival in Holland or something. It's like there was no, you know, but there was nothing back there, no kind of counselling, no no time to relax. And uh, I think from that point on the brothers were like, yeah, Robin's a bit strange, he's a bit weird, and it's like, well, I'm sure he's got like depression and like. Um, uh, you know, post-traumatic um, stress disorder. Stress disorder. <laughs> yeah. Yes, almost certainly. Um, you know, you're pulling the injured and dead bodies out of a train. It's not going to, um, uh, not going to be the best thing that could happen to you. So, um, 
yeah, it's um, that 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 period. That whole is, everything's very very condensed. Their like, initial fame is condensed into about eighteen months after like years and years of struggling in Australia, doing like um, the equivalent of working men's clubs, um, like servicemen's clubs in Australia, and playing after you know after the stripper or before the stripper, and doing Mild Man's a Dustman and Puff the Magic Dragon. You know, as, as long as their, as well as their own songs, um, wasn't the most. Um, yeah, everything, everything happened very quickly and they didn't really cope with it that well. I've got a theory. I've got loads of theories. But I've got a theory about pop music that you can, you can look at all acts in terms of on two axes, if you like. One is charisma and the other is talent. And, you know, some groups have, have loads of charisma and some groups have loads of talent. And it strikes me that the Bee Gees have 95% talent and 5% charisma. Am I, miss, am I missing something? No, no, I think that's, that's probably fair enough. Um, they're, ne- they're never very good in... This man who wrote a book about them. I wouldn't say they're very charismatic. I mean, you know, like, I think Morris is probably the most charismatic out of the three, and he was always the one who was, like, never did interviews, or was, like, you know, the man, the man in the middle, and the other two were the singers. So, uh, but, you know, they're, they're, they're obviously incredibly talented. Um, I mean, I've always, I've, always, I've always admired people who's, like, work at their craft and, and then write great songs and... Uh, can do great arrangements, become great musicians. Um, it's, uh, I'm not, not a huge believer in kind of, you know, the myth that it all just comes to you naturally and you're a born genius, unless you're Brian Wilson or someone. There's very few people, I think, like that. Uh, and the Bee Gees are a very good example. It's like working, working away, working really hard. Which you, until, can, uh, you can see, because even Brian Wilson only had one golden era, whereas the Bee Gees had a few, didn't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the most extraordinary thing, I think, is that, like, like Morris died in 2000 three and up until that point I was still having top 20 hits and being on top of the pops in Britain like whenever they put a new record we out. We must ask you about the Take That uh, yeah. story, it's really interesting but when Take That had a, a big hit with uh, Back For Good, the, the, the inside story was that Back For Good which was apparently a Take That, take that composition was actually written by the Bee Gees on the understanding that if they released it, they must do How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees as the follow-up single because they knew that Back For Good was going to be so huge yeah. that the following single would sell really well. Is that, is that, is that true, do you think? No, no. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, okay. it's quite What a shame. I remember hearing we that. We want it to be true. Everybody heard that at the time, yeah. and it's kind of made sense. It's like, you know, the chorus sounds like it's written by Barry Gibb. You can imagine the Gibbs doing the backing vocals yeah. on the chorus and everything. Um, and no, I mean, the, the guy wrote back for good. His name is on the credit. He's not, he's not in Take That. It's like some, you know, Denmark Street songwriter. No. Um, there's, there's, it's funny, isn't it? It's like in the internet age, that would never have happened, that like, urban myth. But yeah. uh, it kind of made sense. I desperately want it to be true. I'd love, I'd love it to so be true. Like I'd, lo- I'd love the Bee Gees to have written back for good. Yeah. It's a great song, but uh, yeah. no, sadly not. So was there a time, was there ever a time? It's, I can't remember now what the press made of them back in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, because no one had any real understanding of their personalities. There wasn't, didn't mm. appear to be a great story there either, a great mm. kind of narrative like there was with the Stones or the Beatles. Mm. Or whatever. So were they always kind of, dare I use the word, uncool? Would that be, is that fair to say? I think, yeah, I think, again, in, in, in the late 60s, I think they were like, taken much more seriously. Yeah. Um, and people would talk about, um, like Peter Gabriel said, the first Genesis record, they were just, like, just mimicking the Bee Gees because... Uh, that was the sound that was like doing well at the time in early '68, uh, and then Jonathan King would like that when he when he signed them. Um, Space Oddity um, is remarkably similar to New York Mining Disaster, yeah. I think, uh, and the Mellotron. Obviously, they were they were all over the Mellotron ahead of King Crimson and Yes and yeah. everyone. 
Um, and all these things sound a little bit odd when you say it out loud. It's like, no, surely not the Bee Gees. But no, they, they were... No, you don't get, get nearly enough credit for no, that. No, no. So that's, that's the period. And then, again, I think um, the uh, mid to late 70s stuff, when, when the kind of the Disco Sucks thing happened and um, Disco's replaced by bands like Toto and Foreigner um, and Oreo Speedwagon, the productions on those records are remarkably similar to the mid-70s yeah, yeah, Bee Gees. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's... There's, you know, they haven't got the full set of voices. That's the main difference. But productions are very similar, kind of blue-eyed soul, uh, especially Foreigner, I suppose. Um, but there yeah. is, I can feel, a, a kind of change in the attitude towards them. You know, Diana Ross and Michael Jackson and then the Pet Shop Boys, I remember they're talking about all their arrangements were based on the Bee Gees. Noel Gallagher, a huge fan, yeah, you know. Yeah. So do you feel that there is more of a kind of understanding of of how incredibly important and, uh, they were. I'd like to say there is, but I'm not actually that sure. It felt like um, uh, like 20 years ago, there was covers of the Bee Gees songs in the chart constantly, and that was like around the time that um, Noel Gallagher was like singing their praises, and like Steps did two Bee Gees covers and their yeah. massive hits, and like, More Than A Woman. All these things were covered and became hits for um, boy bands and um, X Factor kind of singers as well. Um, and at that point, yeah, they got their sort of lifetime achievement awards yeah. from the Brits and all these things. But I think since they, since they, since Morris died and the group effectively ceased to exist, um, like Barry's had his um, legend spot at Glastonbury, but you go out and try and find, um, you know, the deluxe edition of Main Course, well, there isn't one, you know. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they haven't looked after their catalogue at all, and I think it's, I think it shows how important it is to do that. You look at ABBA with Voyage, yeah. and you know, they've yeah, managed yeah, it all yeah, very, absolutely. very well. You've got well. to work on it, haven't you? You've you have to, to work on it, yeah. Your own, yeah, yeah. No, I guess completely. So. Well, there were things in, in your book that I, I never knew and I thought was absolutely riveting. And, uh, and indeed, there are copies of it over here, which Bob would be very happy to sign, I think. Yes, I would. And uh, thanks so much, Bob. <laughs> we're going to take a break now. Bob Stanley. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. Terrific. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey.